This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Great Migration Gaming. Syria and the Limits of Intervention. Designing for New versus Existing Rules Engines. And the Tarot. This episode is brought to you by Engine Publishing and Odyssey, the complete Game Master's Guide to Campaign Management. It's the fourth system-neutral book for GMs from any award winner, Engine Publishing. Written by award-winning authors Phil Vecchione and Walt Sikanowski, Odyssey is jam-packed with in-depth advice on starting, managing, and ending campaigns, although campaigns often just sort of end themselves. I guess Odyssey would help you do it when you want it to as opposed to just at random. Right. It doesn't need a chapter on ending your campaign because you've been hit by a meteor, because after that, you, you know, you have other worries, right. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but whether you're an old hand or new to game mastering, you'll find a wealth of tips and techniques you can put to immediate use in Odyssey. A guide to starting a new campaign from coming up with the initial concept, which can be as simple as listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, to running a smooth first session, which is slightly less simple. Uh, tips on structuring stories handling problem players, and making your campaign thrive. Advice on actively managing every element of your campaign, stories, characters, players, risk, and change, while avoiding the common pitfalls. Examples of how every aspect of campaign management looks when handled well or badly. <laughs> it's it's important to have other examples of how to handle a campaign badly, I guess. that's. Uh... <laughs> yes, we, we could all imagine the horror stories. Um, and also how to end campaigns on a high note, including what to avoid, for example, being hit by a meteor. We're giving CarTask listeners a special discount on Odyssey, $5 off in the engine publishing store using code CARTASK20. Good through November 2013 on enginepublishing.com. The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the smell of medium-grade pizza tells us that we have entered once more the friendly confines of the gaming hut, only to find that it is a hut on the move, possibly on giant stork legs a la Baba Yaga, but Robin, I'm sure you have more. So I thought we would spitball a campaign frame this week, and that is uh, a campaign frame is an idea that you take to sort of create a new structure for whatever game it is that you want to insert it into, and the term comes from, I think, uh, I think you coined that for Trail of Cthulhu, did you not, Ken? I don't think I coined it. I, I've, heard, I've read it somewhere. I may be the first person to use it a lot in writing, but I, I'm pretty sure I took it from somewhere else. Well, yes, never take credit for anything uh, as being new. That's a big lesson, because whenever you claim an innovation, you will discover that uh, we may find that, you know, H.G. Wells mm -hmm. had a campaign frame in for his Little Wars, uh, yes. Little Wars or something. Uh, so we're going to spitball an idea that you could pour whatever game or genre it is into. And in this case, I thought we would look at the idea of structuring a role-playing campaign around the idea of a great migration, a uh, traveling of a uh, people or a uh, village or a community from uh, one area to the next, so that it's not just about roving adventurers. And in this way, I guess it sort of dovetails with our discussion last week about murder hobos and giving them a sense of community even though they're on the move. And so I thought we would look at both in uh, history and in 
the world of imaginative fiction, the idea of the great migration. And so, Ken, do any big uh, historical migrations come to mind as things that it might be interesting to base a role-playing campaign around? Well, I mean, I think the obvious example is the migration of the people that would become the various Gothic uh, tribes from the Ukraine into Rome. I think that that's kind of a fun one because you have the origin there of the gods that we recognize as Odin and Thor. They're sort of coming into existence around then, so you could have all manner of you know, war in heaven type stories. You've got the Romans on the other side, so the players know that they're about to, you know, have to level up in a hurry if they're going to survive the fights on the border. You've got a historically recognizable period, but you don't have so many details that uh, historical pedants can get on your tail about, you know, whether or not there were or were not owl bears in ancient Czechoslovakia. And so I think that you can... You, you can sort of do something, I, I think if you started to go, if you went all the way back to say, you know, a, a more Robert E. Howardian thing where you have the migration of the Indo-Europeans from uh, Central Asia into Europe or down into Persia or over into India, I think you run into, well, if you do it into India, you have to read the whole frickin' uh, Mahabharata, which is going to take you probably longer than you want to spend researching a campaign frame. Right, but you could always take some basic inspiration and file the serial numbers off and take the few things you do know about that and spin that into a fantasy world. Yeah, you certainly can use that as a basis to adapt something into the fantasy world. If you're playing in our world, I think you need something that's a little closer for the players to hook onto because, uh, you know, something that happened in 2000 BC or, or 4000 BC, depending on how you run the chronology. I mean, any historical data that you give are going to be practically non-existent, and anything that's uh, that, that's known is not necessarily going to be recognizable to the players. So you lose sort of the advantage of having run something uh, on Earth there that that immediate hook. Which is not to say you can't do a perfectly great um, Hyborian age with real-world geography. I think that that would be that would be great fun and, and pretty interesting as well. And other things that would require you to make up a bunch more stuff, because less is known, would be the migration of the Polynesian peoples across the Pacific Islands. That mm -hmm. gives you the other interesting factor of, you know, it's uh, rather than a case of the week, there's an island of the week. And you would arrive on the new island and meet whoever or whatever is there and deal with that challenge. And then it would be sort of, you know, almost sort of Settlers of Catan, the role-playing game in which you are um, occupying more and more territory and you might have uh, schisms and splits with other uh, exiles. Uh, you could also do the migration of the uh, first indigenous peoples into the Americas. And again, I think that's something where so little is known about that that you'd have to make it up. But that could be uh, interesting insofar as the conflict with other intelligent people. A, off the table, or B, since you're making it up, it could be you could run into the aliens that live there or whatever it is, depending on how far it is that you want to go off track. And um, otherwise, it might be interesting to limit it to the fact that, you know, you're going to meet uh, megafauna, but you're not going to meet other people and that the conflicts there would be conflicts that would arise within the group of migrating people. And that could be Again, something that is very resource-oriented, where, you know, you're settling North America or, you know, trying to get away from, uh, and you could do a generational campaign in that case where, you know, you could have early sessions that would have the first migrants and then 
zip forward in time to where the cultures have start, started to spun away from each other, and now you've got conflicts with other human cultures, and you may need to drive further and further south. But the first thing of any uh, migration campaign, I guess I should mention, you know, they're not just historical migration campaigns. It's something you could certainly do in science fiction. Battlestar Galactica is a, yeah, a migration example. example, and I guess uh, Star Trek Voyager uh, is as well, although that's really more of a Gilligan's Island uh, thing than a... You're not trying to go somewhere and settle it and stay. You're trying to uh, get back to where you were and you've been lost, so that's sort of a, a second category, sort of the castaway campaign, which seems more confining mm -hmm. to me, but maybe that's just because I don't like very many of the things that it's modeled on. But let's say that we're doing a classic migration in whatever genre. The first thing you're going to need is a reason why you have to leave where you are. And that can give you your big, exciting, instigating incident at the beginning of your first episode. Yeah, the, 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 the reason that you're leaving, in theory, should also be final enough that the players don't immediately think that the goal of the game is to go over the ridge, you know, level up and come back and take out the guy who chased you out in the first place. There needs to be a, a either an overwhelming level or a finality of it. I think that beginning with that first battle might be good in the sense of it sets up a, a sort of a, a good, um, you know, strong conflict at the beginning, but you run the risk, I think, of focusing the player's direction back the way they came instead of towards the way they're going. I think if you start it up after they've already been on the road long enough that that's uh, part of the assumption, maybe they have to see off, you know, harriers from the uh, from from the guys who who displaced them. Um, you know, uh, whether it be uh, the you know flying saucers from Lemuria that chased the American Indians over the Bering Straits or or whatever it is, something that lets the player characters know and the players know. No, this is not the game in which you go to a clearing and you kill enough dragons and owlbears that you can become super powerful and go back and stab the Huns in the face and prevent them from chasing you across. Uh, the steps into the Roman Empire. And you could have the best of both worlds in your first session by starting it with you are already on the road, but then having flashback sequences that establish why it is that you had to leave and why there is nothing there for you anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah, the um, Speaking of things that are nothing there for you, of course, obviously you can do the same sort of campaign frame with, say, the Okies uh, leaving the Dust Bowl. You know, you could do a modern day almost uh, migration campaign frame. Certainly there are plenty of, of refugee populations in the world right now, although few of them are migrating across continents as opposed to moving one boundary over uh, until the UN or somebody can set up uh, miserable refugee camps for them. But you could still get some of that modern sense, either as a, you know, sort of 10 minutes from now thriller structure where, you know, some uh, country has, has collapsed and you're leaving its... Uh, dictatorial super state or it's a resource disaster or you could go back into you know the the great gaming eras of the 20s and 30s and do something on the order of uh, either tribes being displaced by the belgians in the congo and they have to migrate somewhere into the heart of africa but they're playing africans who are at home there and all of their enemies are going to be either like them so there's going to be that degree of uh, weird familiarity or their enemies are going to be these sort of you know what what we would think of as as you know jungle adventure but obviously retooled to focus on the people who's who in theory know how to deal with elephants and lions they just don't want to right now and you could there are other genres that you could paste a migration onto the post apocalyptic genre obviously is one in which that yeah. gives you the 
accoutrements of modern technology, although you only have so much of it, and you also would then have the wide openness that you have in the real historical precedents where there's not only a reason to leave, but there is somewhere new to go. And that's something that's obviously mm -hmm. missing in the modern world, but something that you could recreate through uh, some sort of collapse scenario, whether it's a uh, near-term post-apocalypse where people remember civilization and are trying to regroup a la the postman or your far future one where generations and generations have passed, essentially turning it back into a uh, Western with different technology, for example. Yeah. And of course, on the concept of the Western, there's right now, I think AMC's got a TV show called Hell on Wheels, which is not quite a migration, but it's about a railroad camp that's moving across the West and uh, having, you know, sort of more, I guess, drama system type adventures rather than, you know, boot hill type adventures. But still, you can certainly turn a game like that into the, or a setting like that into a, a more standard Aces and Eights or boot hill type uh, Western campaign, if that floated your boat, or Deadlands, obviously. And you could even go, you know, really, really far off the map if you wanted, and uh, you could envision a sort of a horror migration. I guess probably the, you know, the zombie apocalypse is the one there where there is. Uh, you know, one continent has all the zombies on it and you were the survivors and you were trying to outpace the zombies and get to the other continent. And you could, you know, tweak what the meaning of zombie is in that context so that, you know, it could be some other slower moving threat like the vampire. You know, you might have a, uh, you know, one continent where for some reason the uh, lycanthropes or the vampires or the aliens or whatever it is that you want to pick as your horror enemies are at least for the moment unable to pursue you and it's all about you know rebuilding uh, civilization there in sort of a survival horror context where you have to keep moving to stay one step ahead of the forward edge of whatever it is and then i guess your ultimate goal there is to find whatever it is that will allow you to set down permanent routes where the zombies or vampires or aliens or whatever it is can no longer attack you. And I guess that sort of brings us to the question of another thing that you want to establish is not only why you had to leave your home, why you had to migrate, but what is the end state of this storyline? Where, where are you going yeah. to say that, okay, you've now achieved your victory or uh, at least played out all of the elements that we set up in the initial part of the story establishment. And so another thing that I think you're going to want to establish pretty early on is what is your goal? And, and presumably the goal is to set down roots somewhere in a safe, prosperous environment where you know that the next generation, where the kids that you have along with you, when they grow up, that they are going to be better off and safer and more prosperous than you currently are on the road in this state of desperation. Obviously, the you know the classic migration campaign frame in that sense in the Western tradition would be the Book of Exodus, where you know you're heading literally to a, a land promised you by God, and the you know the Okies are heading to California. You know the Goths may not know that they're heading to Gaul, but maybe the guys ahead of them have been like, if we can just get across the Rhine, it's going to be you know soft living and plenty of loot for everyone. And I think that finding an end state involves the GM sort of having to keep in mind whether or not the end state, you brought up the zombie example, uh, the, the the quest for the island that happens at the end of um, uh, 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 Day of the Dead is, you know, turns out to be a mirage, but 
the GM doesn't have to decide right on the you know surface of it, is the island a mirage or is there really an island where you can sit down roots and be safe from zombies? Is you know the Holy Grail really somewhere where you can find it and you know turn your um uh, your uh, kingdom into a vampire-proof uh, enclave or, or whatever it is? Is the goal you're going towards real or fake or real or or, or false rather not fake? And I think that to play it straight with the migration campaign frame, you should really resist trying to have a false goal unless, certainly if you've played it over a, a long period of of, uh, of months as opposed to, you know, you've done this a couple of weeks and then you get there and, oh no, the island is a lie and it's full of zombies. I think that it's it's a much, it, it's a much bigger cop-out to have been playing out the entire exodus for, you know, 40 years of game time and two years of real time. And when they get to the promised land, it turns out, Oh, man, this is just Jordan. This is terrible. Right. Now, you could certainly do a fake-out where you get to a seeming promised land, find out that it's overrun by zombies or megafun or whatever it is, and then in that adventure you realize that, oh, no, you know, your coordinates were off or the legend was incorrect, but there still is a promised land to get to, that the uh, threat of finding out that your promised land is not what was promised is much more interesting than just a flat-out bummer ending. And certainly the longer a campaign of any sort is, the less you can play that um, bummer ending card. And you could collaborate with the players to sort of get a sense from them of as they move along, they start to refine what it is that they're looking for. At the beginning, they're they just know they got to get out of there in order to survive. And then each episode could be one where they make some sort of major progress toward whatever their goal is. And the par part of setting up what that progress is, is determining what they think the goal is. So do they want lush farmland? Do they want something that is well defended against their enemies? Do they want to take over and sack this city of effete imperials that they think they have a good shot at. And so that's obviously a very different migration. If you're migrating to a place to conquer it, that has a pretty clear end state that's very different than migrating to a place in order to be able to feed your families. Yeah, and it's not an either-or. I mean, again, going back to the Exodus, when the, the Hebrews get to uh, the Promised Land, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, sure enough, but it's defended by giants who have enormous uh, fortifications and suddenly the Hebrews who have been fighting off all these desert raiders, these Midianites, basically are becoming the thing that was imperiling them on their journey through the desert in order to take the promised land away. And again, you know, everything in real history is has got, you know, there, there's a component in which, yeah, I'm just trying to feed my family, and a component in which, yeah, I'm trying to, uh, you know, take over this place and kill everyone who lives there now. And that's been true for pretty much everyone except, I guess, you know, the first batch of uh, Australopithecines that walked out of Africa and maybe the Australian Aborigines and wave one, though not waves two through five of the Amarins. And uh, even most of them had other things that wanted to eat them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was plenty of uh, problems with saber-toothed tigers and such. And obviously our uh, ancestors, you know, uh, <laughs> there's no more Neanderthals, let's just put it that way. So there was, there was something in our way, on our way to places that we think of as having been um, uh, terra nullius back in the misty past. Well, and speaking of uh, migrations, it's time for us to migrate to the next segment.
And from the fact that we're doing this segment from the set of Dr. Strangelove's War Room, you can tell that we have now entered the geopolitics hut in which we attempt to connect our talk of history and gaming to international events of an international nature. And I thought in this instance we would talk about the curious case of the, let's say, a circuitous non-intervention into uh, Syria and the limits of intervention. So as uh, those of you who pay attention to the news will know, uh, recently Obama got very close to uh, calling in airstrikes on the Syrians, despite the fact that there was almost no constituency f for that, and uh, got his uh, uh, bacon saved for him by an unlikely non-ally in Vladimir Putin, who of course is interested in making sure that there are no regime changes, uh, particularly on his own borders, but just in general, and uh, somehow managed to strike a deal with the Bashar Assad regime in order to get them to uh, give up their chemical weapons and just go back to brutally suppressing their opponents in what is now a two-year civil war through more conventional means. Ken, what do you uh, make of this story? What lesson do you uh, draw from it as someone who's uh, very much a non-Obama fan? Well, I mean, the lesson, first of all, is that uh, <laughs> there... I mean, the lesson, regardless whether you're an Obama fan or not, is that something has definitely switched around in American geopolitical consensus. I mean, just in terms of our national political decision-making. Because up until this, you would have thought that going into a civil war and blowing up one side was pretty much a non-issue. Certainly, uh, Obama did it in Libya as recently as, you know, 2011. And so the notion that all of a sudden there was going to be ob objections to, you know, airstriking uh, Bashar Assad... I think came out of blue for everybody that's a domestic political observer. Uh, on, in terms of geopolitical uh, fallout, the geopolitical fallout is a catastrophic defeat for the United States and a huge win for Vladimir Putin, who basically you know was playing the only, literally the only card that he had and walked away with the pot. So I think that you know anyone who thinks that this is a good outcome for Syria is probably fooling themselves. But admittedly, we may have gone around the corner so far that there is no good outcome left for Syria. And that is just going to be one of those places that we have to hope that nothing particularly threatening to the United States or Turkey or other uh, civilized, peaceful countries comes out of it. And the best outcome becomes a miserable, ongoing civil war that kills hundreds of thousands of people. And that, sadly, is one of those things that happens now and again when you read history. And we are still living in history uh, Francis Fukuyama to uh, notwithstanding. And as catastrophic failures go, it's one of those weird catastrophic failures that prevents the United States from doing something dumb. Um, and I think part of the reason that you're seeing this sort of uh, realignment of around the idea of whether it is wise to intervene in uh, other countries' civil wars uh, comes from the fact that there was already the pre-existing group of war skeptics was within the progressive side within Obama's own camp. So he, you know, lost a big bunch of support that he would normally be able to count on in a, a domestic situation, even, you know, mostly got during Libya, which seemed, you know, feasible and turned out to be, you know, feasible. That well, the, it would be feasible now to turn the lights off on Assad. The fact is that the, if when you look at what happened in Libya afterward, that doesn't seem to have actually done anything, and all it did was expand the 
fighting into Mali, you know, the next door uh, country to, to Libya. Right now, they're setting oil terminals on fire. And, of course, famously, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda elements in Libya managed to kill our ambassador after that happened. So I think that the Libya, you know, the, the, the fact that the anti-war Democrats were in favor of war in Libya and against war in Syria, I think, has more to do with the fact that Obama's not up for re-election than it does whether or not, uh, you know, they look, you know, at what happened in Libya necessarily. I think you may be overestimating the likelihood of being able to decapitate a given leader that in the Libyan instance, you know, you had the ideal result where he's caught on a road by a bunch of his own people and gets the Mussolini treatment, but, you know, usually attempts to knock out the leader and uh, thereby short circuit the necessity of further intervention don't uh, work all that well that uh, as we know from the uh, bin Laden story or the amount of time that Saddam Hussein spent in his spider hole that it's actually phenomenally dif difficult to just have a surgical strike that takes out only the guys that you want and therefore saves all the lives that you're trying to save in a so-called humanitarian intervention uh, and part of the other problem here is that they're the slice of Syrian fighters that you uh, want to have uh, win and liberate the people from the horrible suffering they've been undergoing and the horrible suffering that they will continue to overgo is uh, pretty thin. And uh, we're seeing again that this uh, sort of roving group of uh, jihadis who move from crisis to crisis have settled in on the situation and have uh, taken over. And there's a weird paradox there in that they're the guys who currently have the guns and therefore have the support. And the argument is that if you, if the uh, West had armed the so-called uh, centrist fighters in the Civil War earlier, they might have gotten that power, but then it's equally likely that those weapons would have just ended up in uh, hands that uh, would have led to greater grief later, because the problem with any violent revolution is that it tends to be the violent, ruthless people who win at the end of the day. So it's very difficult to see a positive endpoint from that, and I think that in the West, we just find that very difficult to wrap our heads around. And also just the fact that there are problems, uh, horrible problems, that there's really nothing you can do about that we, as Western powers, cannot neatly project our power into the world because we don't have that power. That's not how it works. And I think it comes down partly to the problem of if you give someone an army, they're going to keep trying to use it to solve their problems. And there's uh, the list of problems that armies solve is uh, much, much shorter than a lot of policymakers think it is. Well, I mean, they, they certainly change the problem into a problem that eventually can be solved by an army, although that may not be a solution that anyone on the ground would want. You know, the question of whether or not you could, even using offshore power as opposed to, you know, the, a, a marine expeditionary force or whatever, take out Assad. I, I think certainly transferring him from presidential palace to spider hole is still a net win. You make an absolutely correct point when you point out that the rebels by now have been so radicalized by these uh, al-Qaeda jihadis uh, who have been going from conflict to conflict, you know, from Afghanistan to Chechnya to Iraq to here, uh, is, it, it, that's, a, that's an excellent point, and it's certainly uh, something that, you know, probably is the reason that we were trying to armed the Free Syrian Army on the down low uh, in the run-up to this decision point. And 
the the question of you know you know loose weapons getting lost is again probably what was behind the Benghazi fiasco, and obviously we're not going to know really what was going on there for a while yet. But I think the question of the limits of intervention again it's a domestic political question. It's not a physical question. It's not like dictators have suddenly become stronger or airstrikes have suddenly become weaker. It's that the will to you know sacrifice American blood and treasure and uh, and effort on, you know, freeing the Syrians or at least rolling the dice and seeing if the next guys who come up will be as bad as uh, the Ba'athist party is, is not there. And that will, like I said, the interesting thing about that will is that it got expressed on the left and was, uh, and has come roaring back on the right. And that realignment, and I guess only the, you know, only time will tell whether or not, you know, Iran tries for a nuclear weapon or if they're trying now under Rouhani to have a uh, a sort of one of those um, uh, peace through delay type moments, uh, then they're not actually going to push it for a bit. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you can certainly make legitimate cases on all sides of the foreign policy map that either the Iranians have noticed that Obama got himself into a corner with no domestic support and had to back down and might think this is our time. Now we can, you know, you know, set off the, the, the great uh, nuclear device and be safe. Or they may, you know, think, let's play the long game. It, it looks like we're going to win in Syria after all, and we're going to wind up, you know, stronger and more powerful and de facto guaranteed by the Russians, which is not something that was necessarily true before 2012. So I don't know. You can go either way. Uh, another interesting eventuality is the fact that the Iranians may choose to use the Syrians as a bargaining chip in their attempt to seize what they think is a window for rapprochement and may, you know, agree to uh, polar support from Assad as uh, something that they can offer that is not going to cost them big time domestically back home because it seems like there are factions on uh, that does genuinely want to rejoin the uh, Western world and lose its pariah state status, but that is dependent on appeasing a lot of different political actors back home and a lot of those things that they would have to give up are costly but uh, the uh, Syrians are probably fairly low on the list of things that they uh, want to preserve well I mean a lot of it depends on how the civil war winds up going I think that they would be happy to quote unquote withdraw their support if it looks like Assad can win they're going to be less likely to do it if it looks like there's a real case that they could build a uh, uh, Alawite or other Shiite state in the ruins of Syria after he loses. And, of course, they can say that they're pulling their support and just not pull their support. I mean, in theory, they claim they're not supporting Hezbollah, but, of course, obviously they are. So it's it, it's one of those, you know, to what extent are we allowing a rhetorical uh, concession to be treated as a real concession? Because, obviously, we've, we, we've signaled very strongly that we're willing to make, you know, any sort of agreement to save face by leaving the French, of all people, um, out there twisting in the wind on the UN resolution uh, about these chemical weapons. And the French wanted to have the resolution contain language that said that if uh, Assad doesn't turn over his chemical weapons or uses them again, that would be a casus belli. And, of course, not only the Russians, but also we backed off of that and said, no, 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 we don't need to put that in the resolution. We're just going to you know, say that if that resolution is violated, it'll be time for another resolution. And, you know, you, you saw what uh, what road that led us down to, because that's the identical process that happened in Iraq. And so I guess the final question is to uh, look for things that we can draw from this very horrible real world story into 
uh, of fiction and gaming. And one of them, I think, is the idea of this sort of franchise operation, these guys who uh, go f from place to place looking for the next uh, jihadi struggle, and you can either make those the antagonists in a campaign frame, as I think a lot of people would be tempted to do, or you could find a way to uh, sort of remove the cultural resonance from that and explore the idea of uh, uh, role-playing these ideological warriors who go from place to place looking for the next ideological war and what it is that drives them and what uh, conflicts uh, they have within themselves and with others, and you could uh, possibly spin that so that it is a ideology that they're fighting for that would be more sympathetic to a group of Western players, if not uh, entirely sympathetic, because after all, you're going to be playing a bunch of hardened badasses who are going around uh, continuing to look for trouble in the name of some abstract ideal or another. Yeah, the, the 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 you know spinning that around is not super hard. Obviously, Rick from Casablanca was exactly that kind of ideologically committed uh, fighter, and he would you know go out and run guns in Ethiopia and fight in Spain and all those kinds of things. And he was fighting fascism, which uh, is not obviously the same thing as fighting the interests of the United States or or infidel states or whatever the, um, the current batch of international troublemakers is doing. But you could present certainly in the context of a sort of uh, one louder cinematic sort of real world. You could, there's a guy right now, and I forget his name, which is sad, but he goes around and provides sort of best practice scenarios for civilian, uh, democratic groups in places like Serbia and in places like Central Asia, in places like Egypt, and he's got like a think tank and he's got idealistic volunteers who go out and they work on the ground with these guys who know the languages, and something like that could easily be a campaign that might not be, you know, your hardened badasses, or maybe you have a hardened badass character whose job is to keep, you know, Al-Qaeda or um, uh, the Egyptian government off your back while you're setting up the, the, the infrastructure to have a sort of um, uh, democratic uh, uh, blossoming in the country. And obviously, uh, you know, this guy is constrained by actual power politics, because so far... Uh, mobs can't defeat uh, guns if the guy with the gun is sufficiently evil, but it's an interesting direction to maybe spin it if you take, you know, add the sort of player character uh, component of super magic tech or actual magic and make that a component of these guys who are going around to these hell holes and trying to uh, ameliorate the lot of decent common people. And another campaign frame that you could wrap around this sort of, I think, probably in a miniseries format would be a modern day war slash ops campaign where you are uh, seeking uh, vengeance or seeking to bring to justice the war criminals who uh, fought in this one campaign where you met them before and now they've moved on to another civil war mm -hmm. and so you then have to learn the ropes and the players uh, in this new civil war situation in order to f try to track them down and uh, whether depending on whether you've met them or not, you know, win their trust and infiltrate in them in order to destroy them, or just to find them and confront them. Yeah, the, the using the war as a backdrop for another sort of adventure is, I think, fairly standard in that you know sort of thriller game space. The notion that you know whether it be the war criminal you swore you'd kill or the formula for Red Mercury, something is somewhere in a Syrian bunker and you need to get in there and get it is, I think, a, a fairly standard. 
uh, use of the, of the today's headlines for, for gaming. I think that another thing that you could look at, going back to our migration, in Syria right now, obviously, the Kurds are attempting to break off the northeastern part of Syria as a Kurdistan, a Syrian Kurdistan, in the same way that the Kurds in Iraq broke off the northern third of Iraq. And that could be a, a, one of those migration campaigns where you have to go into the war zone and rescue Kurdish families who are trapped in Aleppo or Damascus or Hama or somewhere and bring them up into the free Kurdistan, while, which meanwhile has its own crisis because obviously there's, you know, the Turks across the border who are totally not cool with having a second Kurdistan set up across their, their borders. There's, you know, duplicitous American CIA guys who may be helping you or may be helping your enemies and you're not sure. And there's all kinds of great obstacles that you could be having while trying to do, um, I, I guess, a serial migration campaign where your adventure, your standard adventure is go rescue a family and bring them out to the safe zone. It's basically the Kurdish Scarlet Pimpernel. Exactly. Except that they're not hateful, disgusting aristocrats. They're just nice, decent people who happen to uh, not be mass murderers. Uh, well, on that note, I think uh, our uh, geopolitical examination and campaign frame have been... Uh, well dealt with, and uh, we can give the war room back to uh, the military-industrial complex. once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tim Daly asks Ken and Robin, what are the challenges or differences when designing a game for existing game systems versus rolling your own system to fit the game world? And Robin, you have designed more systems to fit the game world than I have, so do you want to take a first swing at that? So I think the big differences between the two approaches is that if you have a pre-existing set of mechanics that you are adapting to whatever the play experience is, that you are doing mostly that version, that take on whatever the game is. So uh, Feng Shui uses the mechanics from a game called Nexus, the Infinite City, but had to tune them a lot in order to work in the more emulative uh, structure of Hong Kong action movies and one in which you can uh, take uh, five or six seemingly mortal injuries and keep on going. The assumptions behind the Nexus rules were uh, more of a sort of a of a physics engine nature that were kind of based on, you know, what really happens when a bullet hits body armor and, and so forth and had a, a different lethality level. And so it was a matter of taking out uh, the sort of heart of action movie stuff from it and bringing that out more. And also, but when you do that, the idea of instilling the core mechanic with a, emotional resonance, you'd better kind of hope that it already has an emotional resonance that fits what it is that you're doing. And I think Feng Shui uh, does that okay. The other time when I took an existing mechanic was the game Rune, which is a, a game where you rotate GM duties from one 
encounter to the next, and it's a competitive structure, and it used the Ars Magica mechanics just basically for um, legacy business reasons, because I was doing this project for Atlas Games, and they wanted uh, that set of mechanics reused, uh, and the challenges there were that uh, Ars Magica is not designed for heavy-duty Viking combat, and so there was a certain amount of straining at the traces there in order to uh, take what was already established and poured it into this other idea. So it's always much easier, I think, to create something that conveys the feel that you're looking for if you can do it from scratch. And that's something that I, you know, generally prefer to do, except to the point where I do want to be able to do new iterations of the thing that I've made from scratch so that uh, there are a couple of different games that take off from the Dying Earth role-playing game, the Dying Earth itself, and Skullduggery. And then there are a number of different gumshoe games, which are all providing different flavors of the same investigative experience. And then it becomes uh, interesting. And part of the challenge is to see, well, what's the gumshoe way to do space opera? Or in your case, what's the gumshoe way to do Call of Cthulhu or the, the gumshoe way to do Knight's Black Agents? Yeah, I think that the, the, there's sort of an interesting middle case there where you're not so much adapting gumshoe to thrillers as so much as looking to say what kind of thing could make a gumshoe game and doing the gumshoe game about that, right? So you and I are not going to you're not going to look at gumshoe and say, "Oh, this is going to be absolutely the game to uh to 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 play um, you know, a a game in which you are ignorant barbarians thudding across the um uh the the, the plains slapping owl bears with your with your great axe it's just not going to you know fit that mode but we might say well what kind of robert e howard fantasy could you do with gunshoe is it is there a, a a place to put a swords and sorcery universe into gumshoe that gumshoe's strengths would come out what aspects of swords and sorcery literature would gumshoe uh bring to the fore and then you design that gumshoe iteration around that, as opposed to saying, well, gumshoe Conan is just going to be a train wreck. We shouldn't do it. Right. So, for example, if we take the segment from the top of the show, the Great Migration, if the assignment was to design a Great Migration game, there's two ways that you could go with that. So you could either develop a mechanic around the idea of exploration and uh, resource management, or you can take an existing game that can sort of be leaped into that. So the gumshoe version of that would be one that was very focused on discovering things about the environment as you move through it that allow you to reach the end state of each individual episode and then the end state of the campaign. So that that immediately shifts the game experience into this is not just a game of migration, but it's a game of exploration where every new area you enter is the mystery of the week. And so it's about looking at what the, the structure is that the game already furthers and seeing if the concept that you have at hand can be married to that structure, if that makes something interesting. Or, you know, it may be that, well, I really wanted to do a great migration in order to have these great mass battles, and I want 
mass battles to be the core game experience, well, obviously then uh, there's nothing gumshoey about a uh, mass battle. And so then you would need to either get a existing game system that's really tuned for that, and I can't actually think of any. And so therefore you would then have to uh, design something around which the core currency of the game, the thing that it pays the most attention to, the way that Gumshoe pays the most attention to solving mysteries, is your mass combat system and the way that interacts with the individual characters. Yeah, before before we leave that, I did want to say that as you were talking, I was thinking, well, the obviously the other thing that Gumshoe is about, in addition to discovery, is resource management. And what is our migration about, if not resource management? And so the notion being that every time you help your tribe survive or prosper, that adds points to your pool, or it goes away in hard times. So that as you're going across the, the, the desert, you may still be the most badass warrior in the tribe, but you're suffering as your tribe is suffering. So you really have an in-game mechanical incentive to find that oasis or kill those Midianites and take their stuff. Right, and not coincidentally, you've been doing a lot of thinking about this because for the Mythos uh, Expeditions uh, supplement for Trail of Cthulhu, you've been tackling that very design problem, which Mm -hmm. is how to do exploration, in this case not migratory exploration, but the sort of classic uh, 20s, 30s global uh, explorer thing into the horror mystery context of Trail of Cthulhu, and resource management is very much at the heart of uh, what you wound up doing. Right. The um, the other th- uh, sort of thing that I think I can bring to this is the experience of having designed two Star Trek games back-to-back uh, with two entirely different systems, and uh, we did uh, the, for those of you who don't know, for good and sufficient reason, uh, we did a game system called the Icon System that we designed for last Unicorn Games, which was a, a more free-form sort of game. I mean, it wasn't, you know, uh, Amber, but it was, it was fairly free-form, fairly open, fairly loose. Everything was just expressions of the character abilities and character paths. The, the life path was a very core part of it. And the notion there was sort of an assumption of competence on the part of the player character. So you didn't maybe start out playing Kirk, but you probably started out playing Sulu and then that sort of concept. And then... After uh, we got uh, hired by Decipher to do their Star Trek game, the order came down that our new Star Trek game engine would have to feel more like D20 uh, because Decipher wanted to compete in that same mind space with uh, Dungeons & Dragons. And so we designed a Star Trek game that was much more about progression and adding feats and adding abilities as you got more and more experience. So you may you didn't start off as Sulu in this case. You started off as maybe Chekhov at the beginning of the second season or, or some... Uh, random red shirt, Mr. Leslie or somebody, and then moved up. And so those were two diff- very different mechanical experiences, very different game design experiences. I think the two games both felt like Star Trek, but they felt like different experiences of Star Trek. And then to sort of add the cherry on top of that, with the icon system, we designed separate game lines for each Star Trek series so that the game line could have a slightly different feel and emphasize or de-emphasize mechanics as befit the specific feel of the setting. So the Star Trek uh, original series game was looser even than the Star Trek Next Generation game. The the Deep Space Nine game that Steve did had more intrigue and uh, interpersonal stuff going on, more ability to do that called out by the rule set. And I think that that's another interesting goal, is even if you're not designing a game from scratch, or if you're designing a game from scratch but you're trying to fit something that has a specific design constraint, whether it be the system or it be the universe, 
I think that those are another set of decisions that you have to make. And I'm, I'm afraid that the only, you know, advice that I have is to, to think very hard when you're doing it, because if you make a mistake early, it, it comes back to, uh, to, to cause problems in, in later game development. And th- your experience with uh, Decipher is interesting in that it is, uh, informed not just by the question of whether you are designing a new game mechanic or adapting an existing set of game mechanics, but that you are getting a directive to execute something that is external to the question of how much like Star Trek is this. You're getting a direction from your bosses to do something that fits their desired business model and where they want to position themselves. And that is uh, can be very challenging because you may not necessarily be on board with that directive creatively. Uh, you might think it is uh, a uh, doomed business decision. And so uh, then you're sort of in that sort of uh, compromise space where you're, uh, you know, working for a client and trying to give the client uh, what it is uh, that they want and that they are uh, in his way uh, or perhaps more so they are more the audience for what it is that you're doing than the uh, gamer community or in fact uh, your own sense of how things ought to go and that's uh, you know where things get really tricky is finding that you know compromise relationship between what you think is going to work uh, what the people making the business decisions think is going to work and then finally what gamers are actually interested in playing although I think that's the same sort of decision that happens whenever you have a collaboration on any basis I mean for example when I was working with Monty Cook on the call of Cthulhu d20 back when I worked for Wizards Monty had one way that he wanted it to go and I had another way that I wanted it to go and Monty uh, being, you know, Monty and me just being me, Monty won. And so if you look at Call of Cthulhu D20, it re- represents Monty's design choices more than it represents mine. But it's not a question of, uh, you know, one being necessarily better or worse. It's a question of one being in one sort of designer's vocabulary or one designer's wheelhouse. There's, there's, there's a level at which doing a D20 version of Call of Cthulhu is, is going to have an insuperable challenge at the beginning just because of the nature of the product. And how you get over that first step almost doesn't matter as long as you get over it somehow. Right. And it's certainly better to be consistent, to have the final product that feels like what Monty's design goals are, rather than a final product that feels like a battle. Like between... an ongoing fight between Monty and me, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> or, you know, or a battle between the designer and a client that the, the designer is working for, that you, mm. however those decisions wind up being made, it is important that they do uh, get made and that by the time that you're, uh, you know, have a game to show people and have them to play, you want it to be coherent and to reflect somebody's vision, whether it's, uh, you know, ideally, of course, as a creator, you want it to be your vision, but that's Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you're uh, charging the net and sometimes you're uh, just going in for an assist. Exactly. Yeah, and that and, and and like like in any creative field, knowing how to give an assist is another different skill entirely than knowing how to uh, be the lead designer. And not everyone is good at both, and some people are only good at one. Well, I think now that we're talking about the pitfalls and challenges of collaboration, we have indeed uh, departed from Tim's question and therefore concluded this segment of Ask Ken and Robin.
the portrait of Madame Blavatsky on the wall and the pentacle painted on the door in a mysterious red substance suggests that we have once again entered the precincts of the consulting occultist. And this week, the consulting occultist is going to ground us in something very basic to the occult tradition, uh, which is the tarot. So, Ken, what can you tell us about the origins of the tarot card deck as we know it today? The origins of the tarot card deck almost certainly came from the whole bunch of different trump-taking game, trick-taking games that began in Italy after playing cards were introduced there, probably in the late 14th century, give or take. Obviously, they're made of paper and they're done by the lower classes, so they're not going to survive necessarily. There is a uh, condemnation of playing cards, I think, by a Dominican monk that comes from about the mid-14th. Uh, and so that's sort of our, our period at which we know people are playing cards enough that it annoys the church. Okay, well, let me interrupt you there and ask, are these cards the product of the technological revolution of, of printing? The first bunch of, of cards that we know about are painted by hand, and they are the product of the technological revolution of being very rich, which is true in both Egypt, where they probably came from, the Mamelukes uh, uh, are probably the origin of playing cards as we know them, and then... Italy, obviously, was the very rich part of Europe. The printed cards may or may not have begun right around the same time that printing happened. We don't know that necessarily about tarot cards, but printing is about 100 years younger than playing cards. So playing cards all begin as painted luxury goods, and I think it's the notion that people who are rich enough to know better are playing cards that is really getting up the nose of the Dominicans, not so much that uh, poor peasants are doing it. So it's it's not anachronistic to have tarot cards uh, in a uh, pseudo-medieval setting if you want to adapt them, right. that uh, you do not need the printing press in your world in order to have tarot cards. No, the, the first batch of, of, of tarot cards that we know about, which are the so-called uh, Visconti Sforza cards, that were done probably for a marriage between the Viscontis and the Sephorzas somewhere in the neighborhood of 1450, maybe. Uh, those cards were hand-painted. And so any any world in which you've got uh, uh, painters and rich guys, you can have tarot cards in theory. So we've got Trump-taking games, and uh, then at the end of the process, we have a medium for divination. How does that transition occur? That transition occurs... Uh, much, much later than people think that it occurs. Uh, tarot cards just begin as a trump-taking game. The imagery is sort of mystical and evocative, but that's because the imagery was set down in the Renaissance when pretty much everything was mystical and evocative. And you can go back to a poem of Petrarch in which he sort of lays out the stages of existence in allegorical terms. That's one possible source for the tarot imagery. Other sources include various just sort of um, moral texts about the, you know, the rise and fall of, of, of kingdoms and uh, the uh, situation of the sinner in the world, things like that. It's sort of your Canterbury Tales, Pilgrim's Progress sort of genre. And that's what those images come from. They, they, they remain a very standard, very boring, well, not that boring, but a very standard trick-taking game. Actually, it is fairly boring because they stopped playing in Italy probably around 15-something, 1600. It's still being played in France because the first mass-produced printed decks are the what the so-called the Marseille Tarot in um, uh, France, probably taken by French uh, soldiers after conquering Italy in 1494. They go back to their home port in Marseille and start playing these looted playing cards. Someone gets the bright idea to print them, and off you go to the races. And so the... Um, the, the Tarot of Marseille is a, is a standard 
like bridge, a trick, trick taking game that exists for about 200 years before a guy named, uh, Cord Gebelon in circa 1781, uh, comes up with the notion that these cards, which are, uh, by then just sort of folk or, uh, low culture artifacts, are like many folk and low culture artifacts would later be, uh, retconned into, are actually the remnants of occult wisdom, and that you, he would be able then to, uh, trace this, uh, this, uh, by this time post-Masonic, uh, story of the, of the seeker after enlightenment finding it through the cards. And what Court de Gebelon is doing is retconning the, uh, the tarot to fit his probably Masonic, uh, occult beliefs in the same exact way that, you know, Alan Moore retcons Wonder Woman to fit his occult beliefs, where no one believes that, uh, William Moulton Marston was an occultist. Everyone believes that Alan Moore is an occultist. When Alan Moore does Wonder Woman in Promethea, He's doing occult Wonder Woman. Same thing with Court de Gavilan. He notices that people are, uh, you know, playing cards. He says, that's, they've got weird images in them. I'll bet that's a Masonic code because I'm a Mason occultist and I think everything's a Masonic code. So where does the uh, sort of spark from that, how does that radiate out into the uh, tarot as we know it today? Uh, what that happens is once de Gavilan puts it into sort of the mainstream of French occultism, it keeps sort of churning through, and every French occultist who does a raisonné or a summa of occult goes to the tarot, and so that happens with de Givry, it certainly happens with Eliphas Lévy, and it happens once the French stuff starts getting moved over into the English Rosicrucian movement, uh, most uh, famously, of course, by A.E. Waite, who does the sort of biggest best-selling tarot in English, the uh, so-called Rider-Waite tarot, because he designed it and it was published by Writer and Company, although, of course, was painted by uh, Pamela Coleman-Smith, who is, as far as I'm concerned, probably the reason that the tarot really takes off. Because if you if you are thinking right now of a tarot card, I would give you nine to, nine to one odds that you are thinking of a card drawn by Pamela Coleman-Smith. And those, those images are just so good and so powerful and so evocative that they really sort of prove to be sticky, you know, like a good, like the Coca-Cola swoosh or the... Or, or the um, uh, Nike uh, arrow thingy are. It's that sort of, you know, putting that occult uh, thought into a, a easily grasped iconic format, and that's just something that uh, Waite and, uh, and Pamela Coleman-Smith did. And when was the Waite-Coleman deck first published? That was published in 1910, so it's right at that, at sort of the, the second lobe of that big uh, pre-war uh, occult explosion that begins with Blavatsky in the 1850s uh, and 60s and then blows up with Crowley and the Golden Dawn in the 1880s and 1890s. And then, right, and when you look at the illustrations, you can definitely see that it has that sort of pre-Raphaelite slash Art Nouveau mm-hmm. look to it that is very much, you know, a 1910 look, and because uh, both of those things, particularly the pre-Raphaelite influence, are meant to evoke an older time, give a... Uh, sense of older provenance to something that, in fact, culturally is pretty new. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the fun thing because this notion that um, the tarot cards are a part of um, the transmission of Egyptian wisdom and that they were kept in secret by the gypsies and all this other romantic stuff is the same. Uh, it's it's the same exact sort of it has the same relationship with actual. Uh, lo- uh, ludology or, or history of games as 
anything that uh, Victorian occultists believed about anthropology or plate tectonics or anything else. It's the same sort of nonsense, but because it's soft science nonsense, there's no real cultural imperative to disprove it. And so we can all sort of go on thinking, oh, it's probably Egyptian wisdom. I don't think that that does any harm and have great fun with it. Because it's occult information, in fact, there is a strong incentive to uh, keep the uh, beautiful romantic nonsense and uh, not look too much under the hood. Right, yeah. The, um, <laughs> yeah. Looking under the hood like it does with so much of the occult turns out to be um, interesting, but not necessarily uh, ro romantically interesting. It turns out to be interesting in the you know madness of crowds and popular delusion sense that so much of history turns out to be interesting in. So are there particular pop culture expressions of the tarot that uh, you think are sort of central to its mythology? Well, I think that certainly if you are going to um, look at what the tarot has sort of done out into pop culture, I think that, you know, to begin with, you have to look at the notion of the tarot as sort of a consumer item. It's a thing that you can buy that is going to signal, yes, I'm part of this subculture, and you norms don't understand the awesome powers at my disposal. And that's the fun of buying a tarot deck uh, even just a Rider weight, and if you buy a tarot deck that isn't the Rider weight, then you're engaging in sort of nerd positioning, only it's occult nerd, not game nerd necessarily positioning, that says, oh no, you use Rider weight like a, like a mundane, like a muggle, I'm using Aleister Crowley's Thoth deck, or I'm using the Aquarian tarot, or I'm using a tarot with pictures from uh, William Blake or uh, Alice in Wonderland on it, and that way you are sort of establishing a sort of... Um, you know, it's edition wars only in um, uh, with pentagrams and, and black eye makeup, and so it's it's much more uh, you know exciting and hysterical. Uh, I, I think that in in terms of uh, of tarot culture as a thing that has sort of expanded into into pop understanding, I think maybe you go to something like Liver Let Die, where Jane Seymour is the is the card reading tarot magician who James Bond uh, seduces by palming uh, the lovers into all of her uh, tarot deck, or um, you can maybe look at uh, comic uh, co comics tarot stuff like um, the uh, Alan Moore's treatment in Promethea or things like the Vertigo tarot, or because obviously pop culture creators, especially pop culture creators who are trying to appeal to an occult-minded audience, start pulling information down out of the tarot and making that their, their structure. I think it's more interesting to look at sort of how high culture has been derailed by the tarot. Things like Charles uh, Williams' novel, The Last Trumps, or T.S. Eliot thinking that the tarot was so important he had to put it in the wasteland, even though, as he explained later, he really didn't understand the tarot and didn't even know what the cards were and was sort of guessing based on his understanding of what pop culture was like. But I think between the wasteland and James Bond, you pretty much have 90% of the tarot that uh, people who haven't been in a candle store uh, know about. Right. Now, if one is uh, postmodern and one's occult thinking a tarot deck does not have to have an ancient lineage or uh, a correct mythology around it that all it requires is that it be a random process that is open to synchronicity and there and through that inspires the person who is doing the reading who is in fact uh, you know the the source of the real psychic or occult uh, power, the power of interpretation of all of these random elements, uh, plus whatever, you know, the universe is choosing to serve up through synchronicity. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no, there, there's no shame in saying 
that the tarot is a technology that was developed by really great occultists, and whether that really great occultist is A.E. Wade or Aleister Crowley or Court de Gibelin, you can still say, yes, this is a technique. This is like, uh, you know, like uh, Merlin or John Dee or Aleister Crowley uh, presented these ways of understanding or applying ancient wisdom, so too does the tarot. And you can also, of course, say that conventional science is ignorant and blah, 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 if you would rather do that. But the notion of the tarot as a as a window to the past is, or a window to the archetypal universe is still, you know, in, in theory, it's, um, it, it's applicable whether or not you have read Michael Dunnett's book on the, on the history of the occult tarot. And as a gaming implement, uh, if you uh, know the symbology of the different cards well enough, or you're just able to uh, cop a cool resonance from those uh, great uh, Coleman illustrations that you can, you know, use that as a, uh, you would any other set of random idea triggers to give you a hit of inspiration uh, when you need it and uh, find yourself otherwise wanting. Yeah, and we uh, have plenty of examples of tarot or tarot-like decks being used uh, in games from our good buddy Jonathan Tweet's Everway to our good buddy James Wallace's Las Vegas. I mean, there's plenty of games in which uh, tarot imagery has been used. I did a a book uh, on the Major Arcana, which were the uh, splats of the Nephilim back when I was line developer for, for Nephilim that involved doing an awful lot of finding tarot resonance in modern day stuff. And I think that you look at any one of those games, you'll be able to have some degree of, of, of a leg up on using it in your own occult game, whatever that happens to be. Obviously, I think White Wolf did a mage tarot for players of mage, uh, the Ascension back in the day that, that could have been used. I'm, I'm sure there was something in the in the rule books that said this is how you use it in your mage game. And have you encountered a, a particularly memorably lame or inappropriately themed tarot deck? I don't know. I think that the ones that I think are lame are the ones that are trying to purify the design but don't do it well. And I'm thinking of things like the uh, the Aquarian tarot and the um, what's it called, like the New Earth tarot or something that's all circles and triangles and and bad art. To me, the whole point of the tarot is that this art should in some way illuminate or excite or interest or inspire. And if the tarot is not doing that, then it almost doesn't matter what you've labeled the cards uh, for the um, uh, for the project to fail. And, and so when I look at something like the uh, Alice in Wonderland tarot, I think it's terrific, even though it's not an occult inspiration, because someone has gone to the trouble of really trying to ape Tenniel and and bring out that, that evocation of madness that uh, the Lewis Carroll art does. But um, when I look at uh, something like Israel Regardi's Golden Dawn tarot, that's fairly blah, and he was just basically trying to uh, get his colors and his geometries right, and therefore loses the part of the tarot that is the, you know, the unexpected. The, what's the little dog doing there in the star? And why is the, you know, Ten of Pentacles crying? And, and all that sort of weird, evocative story part that, that Waite and Crowley put into their, in, into their decks. In, in a way, those uh, very simple abstract decks sort of shift the system mastery, as it were, to the reader who is... Uh, then mm-hmm. uh, required uh, slash able to show off their memorization of what all of the different uh, cards are supposed to represent. It becomes more about what the uh, reader wants to say than what the subject of the reading sees when the cards are laid in front of them. Because if what is being laid out is completely abstract and not 
understandable, you have to go on what the reader is saying. Whereas if you see, you know, the death card or the hanged man card uh, shown on the table, that you as a person who are the recipient of the reading are going to have a reaction to that. Uh, now, I guess also for the point of view of someone doing a cold reading, the more evocative cards are going to tell you more about the person that you're trying to figure out and give a convincing reading for. Yeah, because people are going to respond to things differently and you're going to be able to pull them out. I, and I think that part of the fun of a tarot is the flip of unrecognition and the uncanny and the occult, literally meaning the hidden, because once you've memorized all of the Rider weight deck, I mean, fortunately the art is good, but the, 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 when you flip over, you know, the, the, the Ten of Swords, you're like, okay, I know what the Ten of Swords is going to be. It's that poor guy lying in the, in the field with all those swords stabbed in him. And the, 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 the shock of the new is not there. But if you look at something like the, the Solabuska deck, which was uh, done in, I think, 1494 and was done so early that the tarot imagery hadn't gelled. And so it's all wild and different and strange looking. And that can sort of bring the magic back into the tarot if that's something you're looking for. And I think that's a lot of the reason that people like to buy, you know, Cthulhu tarots or, or Amber tarots or whatever is because they want that shock of half recognition as opposed to the, oh, yeah, okay, the, 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 the magician, he's got his table and blah, blah, blah. And so you want to see how those elements are recombined or how they are evoked and start playing that, uh, that great paridolia game of looking for patterns uh, in a, uh, a random oracle that obviously is the whole point of tarot reading in the first place. I should mention that Tim Powers' novel uh, Last Call, which if you haven't read it, you should rush right out and read, um, plays with that uh, difficult-to-recognize quality of the tarot because the, the secret super-powered magic tarot that's done by super-powered magicians is uh, the, the, the Solabuska tarot. It's not the traditional... Uh, Marseille or uh, Visconti uh, tarot, and so there's 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 differences to it that become uh, evocative details in the in the in the uh, in the in the prose or in the uh, artistic understanding of the book, but they don't really affect the game one way or the other. Whether or not uh, the Ace of Cups has got a baton, or the Ace of Wands rather has got a baton stabbed through his head. I was going to uh, mention as a possible plot device that one could use the idea that, that, that there is this purer deck that exists that you're trying to get back to, but uh, it seems that Tim Powers got to that first. Yes, this is... Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> In uh, uh, South Park, where they did The Simpsons already did it. It's Tim Powers already did it for me. So it's it's between Tim Powers and Avram Davidson. I, I basically just am uh, following along behind and you know, picking up unconsidered trifles like Autolycus. Uh, well, I guess on that note of despond, uh, we have concluded yet another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Engine Publishing. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem off going by clicking the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.